Hello, hello, and welcome to episode seven of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm Robert Furr, your host, and I'm a consultant with Capco Energy Solutions out of Dallas, Texas. And today we're going to be talking about the Olympics. This is For the Love of Olympics. Now that the Olympics have wrapped up this year in Rio 2016, the Summer Games, I wanted to take a look at some of the data that was available. I've been tracking some of it uh, as the games went on, and this is probably going to be the most data-packed uh, episode that I've done so far. So please check in on the show notes at ForTheLoveOfData.com, and uh, you can also find links to it at Love of Data on Twitter. Um, you can also look me up at Robert Fur. Um, but I highly suggest that you check out the show notes because there's going to be a lot of graphs. I'm going to try to uh, break this down as simply as I can uh, for the podcast, but there will be a few things that are going to be a little bit difficult to visualize. Uh, so let's dive right into it. Um, some of the stats that you're going to hear today are from uh, historical Olympic Games and some from the winter, but a lot of it is going to be centered on the 2016 uh, Rio Games because that's so fresh in everyone's mind. Uh, first off, let's let's step back and take a look at history and see how the games came to be uh, where they are in their present state. Uh, so there's not an exact timeline that, uh, that that can really be pinned down as the start of the Olympics. Most people believe they started in 776 BC as part of a religious festival in Greece to honor Zeus. Uh, but there is evidence that uh, suggests uh, both from a literary and archaeological standpoint, uh, that the games could have been taking place as early as the 10th century BC. Uh, there was a race called the Stadion Race that was a 600-foot uh, foot race, and it was the first event in the Olympics uh, that were believed to start in 776 BC. Uh, this may have been the only event for the first 13 Olympics, and the Olympics occurred every four years for 12 centuries up until almost 400 AD. And then there was a break a very long break until 1896 when they resumed in Athens. So if you look today at how you qualify, I had no idea about this until I actually looked, uh, looked this up on the Wikipedia page. Um, but basically every country has a national Olympic committee and they hold events and they certify um, contests. Most of them are races. Uh, and basically, to qualify in an Olympic year, you have a time frame that you can compete in a qualifying event. And if your time is above an entry standard that's published for each event, uh, you can get in. And each country can allow up to three people per event uh, for individual uh, events. And then um, if nobody meets that entry standard, then they can uh, allow one person from each country to go to represent the uh, represent the country, and that's generally per gender uh, because you know most events there's a there's a men's version and a women's version. Uh, for team events, each country may send one team that meets the entry standard, um, and and then it gets slightly more complicated for some of the relays and marathons. Generally, they involve your uh, finish time in various qualifying events. Some of it is things like if you're in a in the top 20 finishers of a Olympic qualifying event, then you're guaranteed. Uh, an invitation to the Olympics. I'm going to also try to break things up here periodically through some of the categories of what we're talking about and uh, share some fun facts. So one thing that I learned that was quite interesting is the marathon wasn't added until 1896 in Athens and it was standardized at 26.2 miles in the 1908 London Games 
because that was the distance between Windsor Castle and White City Stadium. Now there's a legend uh, that the marathon was first uh, first created uh, because there was a person who ran uh, between two cities to warn of an impending attack. And in my research, I, I think I came across that was something like 149 miles. Uh, so it was much longer than the 26.2 miles that a lot of people associate with that legend. So that's a little bit of the history of how we came to be where we are. Um, and I want to share a little bit of history of the cost of the games and talk about that because many people feel like the Olympics are a terrible investment for the host country. And uh, that can be uh, certainly something to... Uh, there's something to be said about that. So Rio's estimated cost for the games this year was $3 billion, uh, but the last projection I saw was that they were at least 50% over that uh, budget, and they were running somewhere around $4.6 billion, and the final number will likely come in even higher than that. Uh, I'm not going to go into too many details on this, this next stat here, but um, if you take a look at the average uh, monthly income of a person in Brazil, and you convert that to dollars, uh, it comes out to about $600 uh, or $7,300 a year. And the estimated cost of the games at $4.6 billion, that's the equivalent of about 630,000 people's salary. Uh, so that's, at first I thought that was quite a big chunk, and that would represent a really large uh, portion of the cost for people in Brazil. But with a, com with a country of over 200 million people, it's actually not a terribly large part of their GDP. Uh, so I expected this to be a lot more taxing on the Brazilian economy, uh, but it really is a, a pretty small portion of it when you, when you look at it in the overall grand scheme of things. I also found a report that tracked the cost of every summer and winter games from the 1960s uh, through uh, the projected cost of Rio and it broke it up by summer and winter and there were some really interesting stats here. Uh, so one thing that was surprising is the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi uh, were the most expensive Olympics uh, to date and that came in at about uh, 21 billion dollars when Russia hosted it. Um, Barcelona in 92 was the next highest and overall the trend is for summer games to cost more than the winter games. Uh, the other interesting thing about this was that most of the uh, countries greatly exceed their budgets for the games, and sometimes it's even hard to pin down the total budget or the actual cost because some countries lose track of it either purposely because they don't want to advertise it or because it's such a hard number to, uh, to, to keep track of. Uh, anyway, there's a really good graph that breaks that down by location and year that'll be in the show notes and a table that shows that the average cost for a game is just north of $3 billion. So definitely a pretty penny. Uh, one thing I didn't get a chance to do is break down the cost per athlete on that, uh, but that would be a pretty good stat. So if anybody out there is wanting to do some number crunching, please uh, calculate that stat and send me a note on Twitter and let me know what you found out. Uh, another fun fact for you guys is the first Winter Games were in 1924 in Chamonix. Now I want to turn uh, my attention to who the athletes are uh, from the 2016 Winter Games, or excuse me, the 2016 Summer Games. Um, 
I took a look at several different stats, all centered around country rankings. So I looked at um, rank by number of athletes, by population, and by um, athletes per capita. And uh, I've got a table of all of this for the top 10 uh, on the show notes. But it showed some, some interesting differences between these three. So ranked by number of athletes, the U.S. was number one with 563, then Brazil, and then Germany, and then Australia. So this list really um, kind of hit the uh, what a lot of people would guess at, as the major Olympic participants. Um, but then when you rank by population... Uh, you know, China, India, the U.S. Are, are number one, two, and three. Then Indonesia and Brazil, and so Indonesia is number four by population, but they weren't in, even in the top ten by uh, number of athletes. And then what got really surprising was when you look at the rank per capita. A lot of small, small nations um, brought a large number of athletes in relation to their size. So the Republic of Cook Islands. Uh, is only about 21,000 people, but it actually brought nine athletes, which put it number one per capita. And then Palau and Nauru, uh, British Virgin Islands, Bermuda, uh, Antigua and Barbada rounded out the top ten. Uh, so you can see that uh, just because you're a small country doesn't mean you can't have good representation. Um, but this also goes back to um, the qualifying standards. So each country has, uh, has to meet that minimum standard uh, for... Each of the events, but you can choose to be more selective if you want to be, and only bring athletes that you think are going to be even a significant margin ahead of that minimum entry standard. Uh, so that could be another reason that some people uh, have a lower rank per capita. Another fun fact for you guys: uh, if anyone out there knows when the first flame started, it was a lot older than what I expected. It was actually in the 1928 Amsterdam Games. Now, continuing on our quest to find out who the typical athletes are, I took a look at gender and age breakdowns. Uh, so there are about 55% male, 45% female participation in the games. And when you break that down by age bracket, um, there's actually a fairly consistent uh, split between all of the brackets. I, I took a look at athletes that were under 20, under 25, under 30, 35, and then greater than 35. Uh, so your biggest mix of athletes is really in the uh, under 30 um, tranches of that. Um, but it's pretty even. So under 20 is 3% male, 4% female. Um, around the, the highest difference between the two was between uh, uh, age 30, 25 to 30, there were 20% male and 16% and female. That was kind of interesting. And then uh, the last thing that I took a look at here was I tried to group off all of the countries um, by their average age of their athletes to find out who uh, brought the oldest group of athletes and who brought the youngest. And again here, um, there were some surprises. So the independent Olympic athletes, uh, these are athletes that are not actually attached to a specific country. Um, they may have gotten in through a qualifying event um, and got an invitation that way. The average age of that group was 35, and that was the top, uh, the, the oldest of the group. And then San Marino was number two with 33. On the other side of the spectrum, the youngest people, uh, the nation of Togo, uh, had nine, uh, 19 as their average age, and Marshall Islands had uh, an average age of 20. So pretty wide spectrum there. Um, and it just shows that uh, depending on the events that you participate in, 
you know, age knows no bounds. And um, I've actually got a uh, a list that I found on a on another website of the oldest competitors, uh, male and female, the oldest gold medalist, the oldest person to ever win a medal, and, and youngest as well. And so the oldest competitor was actually a guy named Oscar Swan, who competed in the 1920 Olympics. He was from Sweden, and he competed at age 72. He actually won uh, a silver in that uh, that Olympics, which made him the oldest medalist. And then he also, in the 1912 Olympics, eight years earlier, won uh, a gold at age 64. So he kind of swept all of the oldest male records in shooting. Uh, on the oldest side for females, it was more across the board. The oldest competitor was a 70-year-old from the UK in an equestrian event. Um, the oldest gold medalist was, uh, she was actually the oldest medalist overall and oldest gold was Lita Pollock from the U.S. She won archery in 1904 at age 63. On the kids' side of the spectrum, uh, there's some uh, there's some differences, ideas of who the youngest person is based on some, some stories here and there, but the youngest confirmed gold medalist, uh, uh, both male and female, they were 13. This is interesting, they were, they were both 13. Uh, they were both in the 1960s Olympics. The boy was uh, won a gold in rowing, the girl won uh, a gold in team swimming. Uh, the guy was from Germany, the girl was from USA. Uh, and the youngest medalist overall was Demetrius Laundress from Greece. In the 1896 Olympics in Athens, the ones that happened after the first break, he medaled uh, in gymnastics team, getting a bronze at age 10. And then Luigina Giavotti from Italy at age 11 in the 1928 Olympics won a silver in team gymnastics. Uh, so kudos to those guys for being so young and, and winning such a uh, an illustrious award. Changing gears here, another fun fact for you guys. Boxing and wrestling were added in 708 BC and 688 BC, respectively. Um, so those are just about 2,700 years old as events in, uh, in the Olympics. The next thing that I wanted to take a look at was what uh, the, the breakdowns are on the medals in the 2016 games. Uh, so one thing that was really interesting is gold, silver, and bronze medals uh, are worth different amounts uh, in the pure materials that they're made of. So gold is, the gold medal is worth about $600. Uh, it's actually just 1% actual gold. It's mostly silver and then a little bit of copper. Uh, the silver is mostly, it has uh, mostly silver and then a little bit of copper in place of the gold. Uh, and it's worth about $325. And then street value of the bronze is a piddly $3. Uh, it's about 97% copper and then some zinc and tin in there. So definitely the uh, the honor per dollar amount of street value goes to the bronze medal there. Uh, but even more interesting than this is what the rewards are that some countries pay athletes for winning a gold. Uh, so the U.S. I think is around $25,000 for winning a gold. Um, they don't even they're not anywhere close to the top 10. Taiwan, um, when you convert their reward into U.S. dollars, it's almost a million dollars. It's right at 950k. 
Uh, and then Singapore is number two at 750k basically, and Indonesia is number three at 382k. So if you've got any ties to those countries and some athletic ability, this would be a great way to uh, to to get yourself some spending money if you can uh, represent them and, and knock out a gold in one of these events. Then I took a look at who the big winners were for 2016, and so this is one of the reasons that I, I wanted the podcast to drop during the Olympics, but I also wanted to wait to see what the medal count uh, ended up as. So I, I looked at the uh, the top 10 by total medals. Uh, the U.S. was number one with 121. Uh, China was number two with 70. And Italy and Canada were part of the top 10, uh, so they had a strong showing in total medals. Uh, but they did not have a strong showing in gold medals, which we'll talk about next. Uh, the other interesting thing is when you look at the cumulative total of medals, the top 10 nations uh, that won the most medals controlled about 60% of the overall medals. And I would be remiss if I didn't look at how Texas compared in here. So if you took a look at all of the athletes that were from Texas or had ties to Texas uh, that medaled in the Olympics, uh, they would have ranked 8th on their own uh, amidst all the other competitors. So for those of us out there that like to talk about Texas as its own country, it would have came in number eight for a number of medals, which is pretty exciting. Taking a uh, taking a look at total gold, so the, the, the earlier statistics were total medal count, and then if you isolate out just the gold medals, uh, the U.S. was still number one, uh, but the U.K. came in number two instead of China. China was number three uh, with 26 medals. And then um, uh, Brazil and uh, Hungary and Spain were all um, nations that were in the top 10 for gold count, but they were not in the top 10 for overall medals. So for the medals that they won, they really made them count. And the interesting thing here was that... Uh, uh, the top ten percent, or the top ten uh, nations, controlled seventy percent of the total golds. So there really is dominance from a total medal count and a gold medal count of the uh, the nations that win them tend to win multiples of them. And I then took a look at um, the percentages of medal type by country. So again, these stats are are, are coming down pretty fast. But uh, if you check out the show notes, you'll you'll find a, a much better visual picture here. Um, so there were six nations that 100% of their medals were gold medals. They all won uh, one medal apiece. And then Argent, so those were Puerto Rico, Singapore, Tajikistan, Kosovo, Jordan, and Fiji. Um, and then Argentina came in with four medals, three of which were gold. And so when you look at the ones that won the most gold as a percentage of their overall number, um, the, the, the six that I mentioned up to this point, and then Jamaica, Hungary, Croatia, Greece, even all of these, um, about the first, about the top, uh, 15 nations or so, uh, 50% or more of the medals that they won were, were all gold. Uh, so again, these guys knew how to make it count whenever, uh, whenever they medaled. Another fun fact for you guys, swimming was added as an event in 1896 uh, when the freestyle stroke became an event, and then the backstroke was added two Olympics later in 1904. And that leads us into um, a discussion about Michael Phelps, because you can't really talk about any Olympics recently uh, without talking about Michael Phelps. And 
there's a lot of articles out there uh, on both sides of the spectrum. Some, you know, say he's the greatest uh, Olympic athlete ever. Others say that, um, you know, he's done some great things, but winning medals in swimming uh, is probably the easiest place to rack up multiple medals. And I feel the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. You know, I read um, I read one interesting article that said uh, to be successful in multiple uh, events in swimming, you can you can be good at multiple events um, if you have a, kind of the ideal swimmer body type, someone that's kind of tall and lanky and thin. Uh, but it compared that to running uh, and said, you know, if you take a look at several different events there. What it takes to be successful in a 200-meter sprint versus a marathon or a 10,000-meter race, it's a very different skill set there. Um, but again, nonetheless, Michael Phelps um, did a tremendous job. He's got 28 total medals, 23 of which are silver. Um, he's got 13 individual medals, which put him, puts him ahead of Leonidas of Rhodes, who was a sprinter from 152 BC, um, who's the next person behind him with the number of most individual medals. Uh, one of the things that I found really interesting about Phelps, uh, when he was preparing for the 2008 Olympics, he was swimming 50 miles a week, and he was consuming 12,000 calories. So if you guys listen to my love of cheesecake episode, he could have eaten uh, a, a whopping four meals a day at Cheesecake Factory or about 10 pieces of cheesecake to fuel his, uh, his daily swim routine. And Katie Ledecky had uh, a wonderful run here in, in, in previous Olympics. Um, but one thing that I found interesting, someone compared a stat between the two, um, and, they, and they showed that if Katie Ledecky maintained her current pace of winning medals, she'd be 39 before she tied Michael Phelps. Uh, so that article was arguing that, that Phelps really does deserve um, the title of um, you know, most decorated uh, Olympian ever. Another interesting thing that I saw is Phelps has not won a bronze since 2004. So uh, in three Olympics since then, he's, he's only won silver and gold. There's another section on the, on the show notes that will talk about the popularity of events. I found a really interesting uh, couple of articles from 538 that talked about um, the amount of viewers for each event and the number of events, and it came up with basically a metal multiplier to adjust um, the weight that, Olymp that, that the medals carry for the country that won them. Um, so the most popular sports to watch are track and field, swimming, gymnastics, and then soccer. But what's interesting about it is track and field has 47 events, and collectively people spend about 2.3 billion hours watching uh, that event. Uh, but then soccer only has two uh, two events where a medal can be awarded: uh, the final match and the uh, the like, basically the gold, silver, and then the bronze match. Um, but they had about 1.3 billion, and so uh, for the amount of events and the amount of opportunities to medal, soccer uh, was actually a much popular sport to watch. And so what 538 did was take this information and um, and tack it up against the number of medals that each country won in, in 2012 uh, to show what an adjusted medal count would be based on the popularity of the sport. Uh, so I thought that was a pretty interesting comparison. They also um, did a comparison of gold medals 
per number of athletes at each Olympics from 1896 to 2012 was when the, the last stat they had was. And they showed that it's actually falling from a peak in about 1920. Uh, so it's getting harder and harder uh, for people to win a gold because the interest in the Olympics is growing, the number of events has grown, the number of competitors have grown, and, and costs are all going up. So uh, the sooner that you can get out there and train and, and, and pull a medal in for yourself, uh, the better off you'll be because the talent pool is just getting bigger and bigger. So take a look at the show notes. Like I've said a few times, um, I've got lots of sources, almost 20 sources on this stuff. Um, and I was really excited to learn all of this. Uh, gave me lots of ideas for the next time the winter or summer games come around. And there are tons of visualizations on all of this data, um, some that I didn't even get uh, didn't even get to talk about. There was one thing that was really interesting for those of you that have seen Gapminder, um, which is a visualization that shows time series data and bubble charts. Uh, they use that on the uh, on the history of the games, I believe, from 1896 to the present. And so that would be something cool to to check out. Um, but uh, just the tip of the iceberg. So if you guys know of interesting Olympic stats or if you've compiled your own, I would love to see them. I'd love to share them with the other people that listen to the podcast. So please um, get in touch with me at Love of Data on Twitter or on my personal uh, account at Robert Fur. And let me know what you thought uh, about the Olympics, about these stats, um, if you have any questions, or if you have anything interesting to share. And as a reminder, I'm always interested in talking to other people. Um, if you've got a topic that you would like to, to join me in, and, and talk about, or if you have ideas of something that you would like to hear, uh, please let me know. Uh, just get in touch, and hopefully we can try to put that together for uh, an episode here in the future. Again, thanks for joining me, and hope you enjoyed the Olympics. So keep your eyes peeled and keep sharing your love of data. Until next time, take care.